In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. So that the darkness can be punctuated with beams of light. Well, well, well. You made it to the end of the week. You know what I think? I think you deserve something special. Something real nice. Thank you very much. So whatever it is, I want you to go get it for yourself. Just go ahead. Just do it. If you feel like you deserve it, go out and get it. Just do it. And if you feel like picking up something nice for me, hey, who am I to argue with you and your judgment and your ideas about rewarding me for, you know, this awesome podcast? (laughs) Who am I to get in the way of that? Well, know this. I love you. Happy you're here. Happy it's Friday. And I'm looking forward to a good weekend. I'm looking forward to reading some more of your guys' comments. I'm looking forward to reading some more of your ladies' comments. I'm just thankful to be here. I wish I could give you a hug. Is that weird? So what are you thinking so far about Mr. Marshall McLuhan? I don't know about you, but I need a shovel because I'm digging it. I'm loving it. Does that make you think of McDonald's? See, this is getting us right back to where we started. These little idiosyncrasies, these little ba-dum-bum-bum-bum. Remember this one? What was the one? Um, Ba-dun-dun, ba-minin. Remember in that show Seinfeld where he was like, Costanza. So you can piggyback these little audio 
oddities and you can piggyback these little memes that are already out there and just they're like a little virus that you put your own DNA into and then you can use that successful virus to penetrate the minds of the people around you get them to think things get them to do things and that's ex- that's quite a bit about what we've been talking about with some of Marshall McLuhan's ideas in fact that's part of the reason why we are in Marshall McLuhan's eyes devolving into a more archaic society it's fascinating to me because we've covered Terrence McKenna we've covered Joseph Campbell and now we're covering Marshall McLuhan and there's this odd thread this Ariadne thread to help us through the maze if you will you know I think it was Terrence McKenna who talked about an archaic revival about returning to some parts of the archaic returning ourselves to some systems of thought that may lead us out of this bind and of course it was Joseph Campbell who spoke to us about the power of myth and here we have Marshall McLuhan forecasting kind of what Terrence McKenna was talking about it's interesting to me to think about why Marshall McLuhan thought this and how he was able to predict this so long ago and then being able to see how some of the social media companies and the internet companies there's I think there's a new documentary out on Netflix that talks about how social media is in fact changing our behavior I forgot the name of it however it's pretty widespread right now, and it's, it talks a lot about what Marshall McLuhan is talking about now. So what do you say we pick up where we left off and uh, keep on trucking? So we were talking about the left and right hemispheres of the brain. We left off with, I think the last sentence was, the present electronic age in its inescapable confrontation with simultaneity presents the first serious threat to the 2500 year dominance of the left hemisphere there are a variety of factors which can give salience or mastery either to the right simultaneous and acoustic hemisphere of the brain or to the left lineal and visual hemisphere No matter how extreme the dominance of either hemisphere in a particular culture, there was always some degree of interplay between the hemispheres. Thanks to the corpus callosum and the anterior and hippocampal commissures, that part of the neural cable network which bridges the hemispheres. Even the Chinese with their extreme cultivation of the right hemisphere which invests every aspect of their lives, their language, their writing with artistic delicacy 
exert much left hemisphere bias and quality in their practicality and concern with moral wisdom. However, their stress falls heavily on what Heisenberg calls the resonant interval or touch. It is a matter of the experience of time and space. A Westerner, for example, arranges flowers in space. The Chinese and the Japanese harmonize the space between the flowers. The importance of this discontinuous space becomes clear in the following passage from The Chinese Eye by Qiang Yi. Indeed, the use of space is one of the Chinese painter's most coveted secrets. One of the first thoughts in his head when he begins to plan his composition. Almost every space in our pictures has a significance. The onlooker may fill them up with his own imagined scenery or with feeling merely. There was a Chinese poet of the Song Dynasty, Ye Ching Chen, who wrote The Sorrows of a Parting and described the scene as follows. Of the three parts spring, scene two are sadness, and the other part is nothing but wind and rain. The Chinese, in other words, allow the right hemisphere to direct the left. They use the eye as an ear, creating the seemingly paradoxical situation that Tony Schwartz notes in the responsive chord apropos the TV image. In watching television, our eyes function like our ears. The experience of the right brain leading the left is by no means foreign to us. Herbert Krugman performed brainwave studies comparing the response of subjects to print and television. One subject was reading a book as the TV came on. As soon as she looked up, her brainwaves slowed significantly. <laughs> she was in a predominantly alpha state, relaxed, passive, unfocused. Her brainwave response to three different types of TV content was basically the same. Even though she told Krugman she liked one, disliked another, and was bored by a third. As a result of a series of such experiments, Krugman argues that this essential alpha state is characteristic of how people respond to TV. Any TV, he remarked. Let me pause for a minute. So as this woman is reading a book, she looks up. And in a matter of seconds, her brain wave response was slowed significantly. Think about that. Within just a few seconds, you are put into a relaxed, passive, and unfocused position. Right? Like what better way to have a message seek seep into your thoughts? Or better, what better way to program somebody than to have them be in this particular almost vegetative slash meditative state? Krugman remarked, the ability of respondents to show high right brain response to even familiar logos 
their right brain response to stories, even before the idea content has been added to them. The predominantly right brain response to TV, and even perhaps to what we call print advertising. This all suggests that in contrast to teaching, the unique power of the electronic media is to shape the content of people's imagery and in that particular way, determine their behavior and their views. Krugman's investigations were, he, he admitted, initially undertaken to disprove the medium is the message. His quantitative results point to a massive and subliminal erosion of our culture through right hemisphere indoctrination by TV. In a wider sense, all electronic media as a new configuration or ground gives salience only to the right hemisphere. There is no way of quantifying the right hemisphere, which emphasizes inner and qualitative aspects of experience. The current spate of dyslexia and other learning disability difficulties, some 90% of the victims are male, may well be a direct result of TV and other electronic media pressuring us into returning to the right hemisphere. Dyslexia is an, is an inability to adopt a single fixed point of view with respect to all letters and words. Conversely, it consists of approaching letters and words from many points of view simultaneously, i.e. right brain fashion. Without the assumption that any as near one point view vision is problems correct, build, so will problems with a left hemisphere alphabetic form. Is there a direct relationship between soaring delinquency rates in the U.S. and Canada and reading disability? The cubists as artists and the antennae of the race detected the shift some 70 years ago and explored the emerging grammar of the right brain sensory modality. If literacy is to survive in the West, our writing system will soon have to be recast in a mold congenial to right hemisphere sensibilities and satisfactions. It may be necessary, for example, to make a transition from stick and ball penmanship to italics from the Palmer method to a shortened form of calligraphy. In brief, every man a cubist. We have long been accustomed to using the interval between the wheel and the axle as an example not only of touch, but also of play. Without play, without that figure ground interval, there is neither wheel nor axle. The space between the wheel and the axle, which defines both, is where the action is. And this space is both audio and tactile. The Chinese, as we have said, use the interval between things as a primary means of getting in touch with situations. Nothing could be more expressive than this interval of the properties of the right hemisphere in contrast to the left. For to the left brain, the interval is a space which must be logically connected, filled, and bridged. Such is the dictate of lineality and visual order in contrast to the resonating interval of, or gap, excuse me. Such is the dictate of lineality and visual order in contrast to the resonating interval or gap 
of the simultaneous world of the right hemisphere. In the Book of Tea, Okakura Kakuzo explains the Japanese attitude to social relationships as a constant readjustment to our surroundings. This is the extreme contrast to the Western or visual point of view, which assumes a fixed position from which to examine each situation and to assert one's preference. Right hemisphere culture has no place for the private individual, just as left hemisphere society regards tribal groups as sinister and threatening, e.g. the yellow peril World War II soldiers and sailors used to refer to natives in the South Pacific. Suzuki, the great authority on Zen Buddhism, describes Mugga as ecstasy, with no sense of I am doing it. Effortlessness, the observing self, is eliminated. A man loses himself, that is, he ceases to be a spectator of his acts. Suzuki says, with the awakening of consciousness, the will is split into two, actor and observer. Conflict is inevitable, for the actor, minus self, wants to be free from the limitations of the observer self. Therefore, in enlightenment, the disciple discovers that there is no observer self, no soul entity as an unknown or knowable quantity. Nothing remains but the goal and the act that accomplishes it. The right hemisphere culture has a great affinity for the simultaneity of the age of electronic information as Okakura Kakuzo explains. The present is the moving infinity, the legitimate sphere of the relative. Relativity seeing, seeks adjustment. Adjustment is art. The art of life lies in a constant readjustment to our surroundings. The right hemisphere culture naturally seeks to tune or reconfigure intervals rather than to connect situations and relationships. The Taoists claimed that the comedy of life could be made more interesting if everyone would preserve the unities to keep the proportion of things and give place to others without losing one's own position was the secret of success in the mundane drama. We must know the whole play in order to properly act our parts. The conception of totality must never be lost in that of the individual. This Lao this Laosi illustrates by his favorite metaphor of the vacuum. He claimed that only in the vacuum lay the truly essential. The reality of a room, for instance, was to be found in vacant space enclosed by the roof and walls, not in the roof and walls themselves. The usefulness of a water pitcher dwelt in the emptiness where water might be put not in the form of the pitcher or of the material of which it was made. Vacuum is all potent 
because it is all containing. In vacuum alone, motion becomes possible. One can see immediately how the concept of zero must have struck the West when it was first introduced through Africa to Europe in the Middle Ages. The Oriental idea suggested the possibility of play in mathematics and science, the absence of which tended to cripple the computations of the Romans and the Greeks. Kakuzo adds, in jujitsu, one seeks to draw out and exhaust the enemy's strength by non-resistance, vacuum, while conserving one's own strength for victory in the final struggle. In Western art, we admire the power of statement and the bounding line in design, whereas the right hemisphere culture gives play to the opposite principle. Instead of statement, the stress is on the value of suggestion. In art, the importance of the same principle is illustrated by the value of suggestion. In leaving something unsaid, the beholder is given a chance to complete the idea and thus a great masterpiece irresistibly rivets your attention until you seem to become actually a part of it. A vacuum is there for you to enter and fill up to the full measure of your aesthetic emotion. This is of the same order as the preliterate Greek technique of mimesis discussed earlier. Yet some of our most perceptive Western writers particularly in the early part of the century, were so captured by the rigidity of a fixed point of view, of objectivity, that they failed to give equal time to the reconciliation of opposites. They did not understand that oral cultures regard robotism as a desirable norm. In contrast, Windham Lewis in Men Without Art maintains that the role of the civilized artist is to prevent our becoming adjusted since to individualized Western society, the well-adjusted man is an impercipient automation. The term robotism, therefore, as we use it, does not mean the mechanically rigid behavior of Rosum's universal robots as Carol Kopeck used the word in his 1938 play. Rather, robotism in this context means the suppression of the conscious, the suppression of the conscious observer self or conscience, so as to remove all fear and circumspection, all encumbrances to ideal performance. Such a man, as Suzuki says, becomes as the dead who have passed beyond the necessity of taking thought about the proper course of action. The dead are no longer returning on. They are free. Therefore, to say, I will live as one already dead, means a supreme release from conflict. The Japanese use living as one already dead to mean that one lives on a plane of expertness. It is the extinction of the left hemisphere detached and objective self. If the result resembles detachment, 
It is from pushing the right hemisphere to a state of total enlargement or enhancement to the point of reversal of apparent characteristics. As Ruth Benedict remarks, it is used in common everyday exhortation to encourage a boy who is worrying about his final exams from middle school. A man will say, take them as one already dead and pass them easily. To encourage someone who is undertaking an important business deal, a friend will say, be as one already dead. When a man goes through a great soul crisis and cannot see his way ahead, he quite commonly emerges with the resolve to live as one already dead. She continues, it points up vividly the difference between Western and Eastern psychology that when we speak of a consciousless American, we mean a man who no longer feels the sense of sin which should accompany wrongdoing. However, in the Japanese sense, as an equivalent phrase, he means a man who is no longer tense and hindered. The American means a bad man. The Japanese means a good man, a trained man, a man able to use his abilities to the utmost. He means a man who can perform the most difficult and devoted deeds of unselfishness. The great American sanction for good behavior is guilt. A man who becomes a callous conscious can no longer feel this has become antisocial. The Japanese culture diagram the problem differently. According to their philosophy, man in his inmost soul is good. If his impulse can be directly embodied in his deed, he acts virtuously and easily. Therefore, he undergoes in expertness, self-training to eliminate the self-censorship of shame. Only then is the sixth sense free of hindrance. It is his supreme release from self-consciousness and conflict. You guys see the difference there? The paradox today is that the ground of the latest Western technologies is electronic and simultaneous and thus is structurally right hemisphere and oriental and oral in its nature and effects. The reason for this state of affairs is that most Western technologies retain often quite unnecessarily like the computer, a mechanical one thing at a time basis as a form of 19th century cultural lag. The situation began with the telegraph over a century ago. The overwhelming pattern of procedures in the Western world remains lineal, sequential, and connected in political and legal institutions, also in education and commerce, but not in entertainment or art, a formula for complete chaos. The ground of the Oriental Right Hemisphere world, meantime, is rapidly acquiring some of the hardware connectedness of the Left Hemisphere Western world. Before 1940, Japan began to compete in the arena of modern industrialism in textiles, shipbuilding, etc. Today it rivals American competence in the making of semiconductors and small autos. China has recently embarked on a program of mass alphabetic literacy, which will result in her acquiring a completely left hemisphere cultural bias, 
plunging the Chinese into a new phase of individualized enterprise and aggression for which they are already developing, once again, a ground of industrial hardware. As one Canadian observer who had been there in the 1980 with a Canadian symphony orchestra says, the Chinese are in the act of tearing their cultural skin off in order to protect themselves against Russian hardware. I think it's important to note this book was written some time ago. So if some of the references are dated, you know why. In general, it needs to be noted that left hemisphere man has very little power to observe or control environments or to see the patterns of change. The oriental tradition, on the other hand, reflects a particular attunement to all facets of ground and immediate responsiveness to changes in ground configuration. In the 1970s, the Japanese quickly perceived the developing public need for small cars on a world scale. American car makers were mesmerized by the car as object. The Japanese saw the car as ground, as part of the serviced environment which encompassed it. Oral peoples in Asia or the third world are notoriously conservative about new technologies because of their sensitivity to the side effects involved. The new ground they bring into play and, their hi- and theirs are histories of rejections of innovations. Westerners, in contrast, tend to adopt anything that promises an immediate profit and to ignore all side effects. It is this sensitivity to ground, plus a strong sense of decorum and a lack of private identity that enables the Eastern culture to change behavior instantly from one pattern to another. For example, until August 1945, the Chu Code of Loyalty demanded of the Japanese people that they fight to the last man against the enemy. When the emperor changed the requirements of Chu by broadcasting Japan's capitulation, the Japanese outdid themselves in expressing their cooperation with their victors. Occidentals cannot easily credit the ability of the Japanese to swing from one behavior to another without psychic cost. Such extreme possibilities are not included in our experience. Yet in Japanese life, the contradictions, as they seem to us, are as deeply based in their view of life as our uniformities are in ours. It is especially important for Occidentals to recognize that the circles into which the Japanese divide life do not include any circle of evil. This is not to say that the Japanese do not recognize bad behavior, but they do not see human life as a stage on which forces of good contend with forces of evil. They see existence as a drama, which calls for careful balancing of the claims of one circle against another and of one course of procedure against another, each circle and each course being in itself good. Instead of an abstract or objective uniform visual code of conduct applicable to all situations, there is rather a multi-sensory equilibrium or balance of properties to be adjusted constantly. The ground must remain tuned. 
Robotism is instant readjustment. Angleism, on the other hand, ensures a rigidity of point of view, which is largely a consequence of linear and visual logic. It is best characterized as promoting confrontation and fragmentation. Some of the chief elements in the illusion of objectivity. One emphasizes the eye over the ear. The function of robotism is the reverse. As Lowell Thomas used to say, on the air, you're everywhere. The robotic man is capable of instant adjustment to any social situation without guilt, since he keeps his ear tuned to a collective, a moral identity, which we call the audience, like the attentive crowd, an audience is tuned ground. That is something we should all try and understand a little bit more is the ability for some cultures to turn on a dime and other cultures to be a slave to their linear and visual logic. If you just take a few minutes to think about this last little bit that we talked about, I think it accurately portrays what's happening in our world today. The adversarial system of the West, which would be the analytical left brain, it's so great in so many ways and it causes such critical thinking. And it helps us solve a lot of issues. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying... I'm... I don't truly understand how either system can be correct. And I think that's the I think that's the point Marshall McLuhan is trying to make is that we need to be working with both hemispheres of the brain. If you just have the left analytical side, then you're going to be promoting confrontation and fragmentation, which may be good in the short term the confrontation, the battle of ideas, the best idea wins. That sounds great in theory until it gets to a point where neither side will give up. Both, no, my idea is better. No, mine is. No, mine is. And then that is the point of fragmentation. And you can see it in the movements that we have today, whether it's Occupy Wall Street. And granted, there may be in a lot of the big movements that tend to fragment, you often hear about how those groups were purposely fragmented by provocateurs. You know what I mean by that? Like someone in power will, will get into the group and then subvert it. However, regardless if that's an organic process or if it is subversion, the process of fragmentation in the battle of ideas is cancerous. It takes away the ability for large groups to mobilize. And so that that is the downfall of the left hemisphere. It can only take you so far before the logical conclusion is fragmentation. However, if you're going to go strictly on the right side and you can 
easily change from, we should kill all these people. We're going to fight till the end. We should... You remember the rape of Ninkan, Nanking? When the Japanese soldiers went in and just slaughtered and raped and pillaged all the Chinese people? Like, that's okay. And then the very next day, oh, we're sorry. Our bad. We didn't mean to do that. But they, genu- they genuinely mean it. In the West, we would look like, you don't mean that. You just fucking did that yesterday. You still hate all those people. You see, we can't comprehend the ability for a culture to turn on a dime and be like, okay, we think this, now we think that. But why do you think that? Because our grand supreme religious dictator leader said it. If you think about, you know, if you think about the emperor of Japan, is he really that different than the emperor of North Korea? Not really. Not in, not in the Western mind. You could say one is a better person and leads his people better. But to the Western mind, it's like, yeah, you're still under an emperor. One of them, if, they're, if they are both from God, you know, whatever they're... I don't know. It's probably, it probably sounds pretty ignorant for me because I don't truly understand the culture. However, it does seem like a valid point from the left hemisphere... They're both emperors. One of them likes to starve their people, and one of them likes chrysanthemums. That's very, I, that's silly. There's way more to it than that. I'm just trying to be funny there. So please don't take that out on me. Unless you want to. Then I probably deserve it. Well, that's what I got for today, you guys. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure and an honor. It's been a pleasure honor hanging out with you guys today. I hope you have a brilliant Friday. I hope that you got something planned for the weekend that's going to make your life I am hopeful, my friends, that all of you fall like rays of sunshine through a series of openings inside a cave so that the darkness can be punctuated with beams of light. I should write that down. That's really pretty. And if you can do that, 99% of the time, you will be successful in your relationships. See what I did there? Did the whole left brain, right brain, metaphor, analytical thing. Try it. It works. I love you. Have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way. I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly 
that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.